Well, again, it's my distinct privilege to say, open the Word of God, and let's open to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, chapter 4, rather. Let's do chapter 4. We've done chapter 3. It is time for chapter 4, and I come with a kind of a sober tone to this chapter because what we're going to be discussing over the next little while is something that is potently parallel to what our culture is undergoing. We're going to be talking about satanic temptation, Satan's three temptations that he leveled at Christ and assaulted him with are common temptations that we are facing even in our culture today. Uh, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Well, that is abundantly clear in terms of Satan's schemes and strategies where he's trying to debunk the church and to put it on the sidelines. And we have to be wise to Satan's strategies. If I were to ask you a a year ago, mid-September, where you think we might be a year later, I don't care how much of a prognosticator you might be or even conspiracy theorist as to what liberalism would be doing within our culture. The dramatic shift in what's around us in terms of atmosphere, the dramatic shift in terms of the perceived or real danger level that we experience or observe on the news the scenes that we see that are pipelined in and through what I jokingly call our second brain, right? This is my clock so I don't run over in preaching. However, uh, these phones and devices and whatever other media you put yourself in front of are filled with all kinds of messaging that is producing the culture around us. Even the perception that liberalism is winning right now and and that we are defeated in any kind of conservative biblical mindset is pervasive. And yet we have to go back to reality and go back to the ground of Scripture to know where we stand and what we believe and what we are standing for. But a year ago, if we were to say, man, our culture is flipped on its head, will be flipped on its head like it is today might have sounded crazy, but now we're kind of used to a culture that is pushing an agenda. There was one Christian leader who recently I heard say that one of the political parties in the November's election is standing on the platform of Romans chapter 1 and the digression of the culture that is blurring the lines between biblical masculinity and femininity and the pervasive push for lust and autonomies and freedoms to do whatever you want. I mean, those things are being pushed on us all of the time. Sometimes you watch videos about, you know, people that are bullying and crowds that are coming in and riots and protests and things and fire bombs that are being sent and we're becoming sort of used to it. We're becoming numbed to seeing these things, but these things look like a third world country um, dynamic, not somewhere where there is law in charge. There's a spirit of lawlessness that is pervasive these days, and people are standing against law enforcement. And that kind of rebellion is sourced in a particular someone, a being. And I know who's behind it. I mean, people sort of 
theorize about power groups that are masterminding um, these kinds of influences in our culture. And I'm not trying to unpack those things, but I know that there is a great conspirator between, uh, behind the evil that we see pervasive in our world. And his name is Satan. He is the devil. He is the serpent. And we should not be surprised by his effectiveness in a lost world, in a sinful culture. He's feeding people's flesh. He's called the ruler of the world, John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. This is the ruler that Jesus spoke of, that Jesus exposed. He's called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's also called the one in whom the world Lies. He's the liar, and he is the one who is in power, a delegated power, an allowed power by the Father, by God, to allow this world to feed on its own sinfulness and expose itself in its own unrighteousness. The Lord allowed Satan to rule in this way. America is under demonic influence. just want to call it out. It's under demonic influence. When we come to church, we are flying in the face of this influence. When we stand for truth, when we open the word of God and read from scripture and sing God's praises, we are flying in the face of satanic onslaught. We stand for truth. We stand for the gospel. We stand as kingdom citizens, not from this world. We are passing through even as American citizens here. Daniel chapter 10, 13 exposes and pulls the curtain back of the demonic realm where Daniel is speaking even prophetically and understanding that the kingdom that he was a part of, where he had been injected into this kingdom under Babylonian captivity that had been subsumed and taken over in in Persian, um, sort of Persian dominance, was really, Daniel was able to see beyond the Persian ruler to, in the spiritual realm, a demon ruler called the Prince of Persia. It says the Prince, um, ten, Daniel ten thirteen. the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. It's the fruit of satanic influence and demonized leadership where we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The, the demons are real. The ideologies that they promote are real. Trying to blur the lines of morality to undermine scripture and truth. Anarchy is satanic lawlessness where people believe they are free to buck the system and to circumvent the law are really um, part of a brainwashed Culture where they are enslaving themselves like addicts to Satan himself, becoming a drug addict of Satan and becoming incarcerated, even though they are saying that they are free, they are enslaved to their own lust and their own sins. It's the three basic temptations of First John that are the temptations of worldliness, which worldliness should be a synonym for Satanism. Because the world is under his power. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, as many of us memorized it, right? Lusts, desires, 
strong desires for instant gratification, um, for feeding the eye gate with whatever the world will feed you with, the pride in possessions. I have everything. I have more than you have. These are the drivers in the satanic ideological world. This is the poison that's being injected in us all the time. This is what Jesus stood against. What are the, even in 1 John 2, I want to just mention verse 18, two verses later, it says that the world is under the power of the antichrists, antichrists, plural. So this is the demonic realm that we're talking about, antichrists in the last hour. They're making three promises. Listen, this is real practical. Let me see if you have heard these lies, because again, there's nothing new. These are the satanic lies all the way back from Genesis 3, the serpent tempting Adam and Eve where we lost paradise You can feel however you want to feel. It's a less of the flesh. Instant gratification. You can feel however you want. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can feel any way you want. You can drug yourself. You can escape. You can do this. You can look at that. Feel this way. Existentialism. It's great. This is what secular universities promote. Second, you can do whatever you want. I'm not saying don't go to a secular university. We need gospel witnesses there, but you better be strong. Second, you can do whatever you want. Just complete freedom, lawlessness. And then thirdly, you can have whatever you want. You can feel any way you want. You can do whatever you want. You can have anything you want. Anything you want. Just order it up. Take it. Just take it. These are the three temptations of the the culture. They're going to be my three points in my outline that are... Um, framing the three temptations of the devil. Number one, the devil tempts Christ and, and the culture is tempted for instant gratification. That's number one, instant gratification. Number two, absolute freedom. Number three, unlimited power. Instant gratification, absolute freedom, and unlimited power. That's what Satan was attempting to give Jesus permission to grab You should be able to instantly gratify your flesh, Jesus. Number two, you should have absolute freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want to, because you're the son of God. And number three, you should have unlimited power now your way, no questions asked, because you're the son of God. Put into secular humanism, hey, you're an American citizen. You deserve to feel how you want to feel. You deserve complete and absolute freedom to do whatever you want to do. Go wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go there, and do whatever you want to do, and then you should have unlimited power to do it. These are the satanic temptations. I'm just trying to put, not to use the cliche, but put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I really am, because I want you to go, oh, it really is that real, that simple, and you need to be armed with this kind of discernment. I feel like if you came to church Physically here today, you mean business. So I'm going to give you the business of Scripture. I'm going to give you the seriousness of truth, straight up, straightforwardly. Because we need to take a stand together within this culture. By the way, the lust for money, the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil, is driven by these lusts. Money to feed flesh. To, be, to feed pride, to feed desires of the eyes, money. That's why people want it. These are the same temptations of Adam and Eve. They had the perfect culture. 
and they lost paradise. It's the same temptations Israel faced in the wilderness where they, they fled Egypt and immediately became discontented and they wanted food. They wanted instant gratification. They, they wanted to have a, a solution that they could see immediately, so they made a golden calf. And then they fell in pride and that first generation fell in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, take heed. He who thinks he stands because he will fall. And the example of that is the first generation. Boom. Don't fall prey to these temptations. Satan's trying to take over not just our country. He's trying to take over the churches. Don't be deceived. He wants us to not stand. He wants us to not speak. He wants the word of God to be suffocated. Because the word of God is the only power source stronger than these falsehoods. 1 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying. Listen to this battle language. We are destroying speculations. That's these ideologies. That's these lies. That's these promoted evil desires. We are destroying speculations. They're fortresses. We're ripping them down. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God Hey, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we're doing right now. We are, we are jailing these falsehoods under Christ. That's what the Lord has teed up for us in Matthew chapter 4. Why are we in chapter 4? Because God has brought us here. So let me read um, just into this text. We're going to cover verses 1 to 11, the three temptations, but I'm going to read into the first one. It says, then Jesus was led up. By the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's stop there. The first Point and the first temptation is instant gratification. The temptation for instant gratification. Jesus, if you're taking notes as a header, he identified, exposed, and counterattacked Satan's assaults. He identifies them, he exposes them, he counters them. Number one, instant gratification. This is um, in the context of the immediacy of the Spirit of God thrusting Jesus into a wilderness-like environment. It's a dramatic shift in scene uh, from Jesus' baptism. Remember, he was baptized, he came, he interacted with John the Baptist, and he convinced John the Baptist that it was right for Jesus to be baptized, to symbolize that he was identifying as the solution for sin, as, as the one who was going go to cro- go to the cross. And so he was entering into this baptism of repentance symbolically as the Savior, not as a repenter, but a redeemer. And John the Baptist conceded to that. When he came up from the water, G- uh, the Lord came down with affirmation. The Lord came up and God the Father came down as the skies opened up like a gaping mouth and 
And the Spirit of God descended as if, as if it were a dove, and he came down, climbing down upon Jesus Christ, affirming him as the Lord in a pre-coronation service to say, Jesus Christ is, in fact, the King of kings, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he whom John the Baptist spoke of. And the Father's affirmation is saying, this is my beloved Son. This is him in whom I am well pleased so the Spirit of God is, has alighted upon Jesus, and then the Spirit of God immediately takes Jesus and hurdles him into the wilderness. It's dramatic. It's a dramatic shift of scenery. Wilderness here is the word for desolation. Desolation. This is not a good place to be. This is not a retreat of isolation as some kind of monastic priest who's trying to find himself. This is Jesus going into a wild, wild, desolate, dramatic territory where he's fasting for 40 days and not eating. He is in utter abject dependence upon the Lord. And this is a testing ground, a place for training in warfare. He's going into a battle with Satan. This is an arena. This is the early stage of his ministry that's going to span three years. This is the precursor to the cross where he's engaging the devil with the word of truth. Wilderness is an undisclosed location It's anything but comfortable. It's been said that it is near or exactly the place called uh, Yeshimon, which is where um, the children of Israel wandered, literally wandered in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8.15, these are Moses' words recounting what had happened to the children of Israel, where they were. Deuteronomy is second law. Deuteros means second, and namas means law. Deuteronomy is where... Moses is reiterating what he had written down as the law in Exodus. Moses isn't going to go into the promised land. So at Kadesh Barnea, he writes one more ending marker of the Pentateuch, one more portion of the law that's reiterating and kind of the pep talk and the the refortification of the word of God to say, you're going through Jordan into promised land. Don't forget these things. One of the things Moses reminded this second generation of was the wilderness that they've just come from. Deuteronomy 8.15, it's talking about God who led you um, through the great and terrifying wilderness. This is where Jesus was. It's with fiery serpents, scorpions, the thirsty ground where there's no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. God is the one that provided for you in this area. It was an area filled with jagged cliffs, 100 feet high ravines with dangerous animals, snakes, scorpions, mountain lions, panthers, jackals. Jesus walked in this area as prey. He walked as prey. Very wild place to be. And he's hungry. He's vulnerable. He's full humanity, full God, full full humanity. He has taken on the form of a servant. He's laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes, still fully God, but he is deferring that under God the Father's will in submission, and he is in survival mode, and this is at the end of 40 days. So he's starving and completely vulnerable in a desolate place, isolated, all by himself, Why do you need to go there? Well, in one sense, he's following in the same path as the ones who've gone before him, spiritual leaders like Moses who'd been given the law of God, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34, 28, 
depicts Moses in a wilderness-like experience like this. Elijah, after defeating the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 19.8, went away in this way. This is what God does to prepare his servants. You think in terms of the times in your life that you thought, why is God doing this to me? Why am I being stripped bare of my identity, my needs, my my wants, why am I vulnerable right now? Well, in one sense, you were being prepared for something, just like Jesus was being prepared. He was to be tempted by the devil, a lesser war for the greater war that was coming at the cross. This temptation, this testing was the proving ground of Christ to say, you are ready You are fortified, you are equipped, you are in the power of the Holy Spirit to move forward in ministry for the next three years, all the way to Gethsemane, and then to the cross. You follow? This is what this is this is about. It's a temptation. Now, you should ask yourself the question, why is the Holy Spirit the one who is leading Jesus. That word lead is like filling the sails of a sailboat, leading Jesus by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. It's very clear. It's very explicit. You're going there for that. The the devil didn't figure out God's plan and inject him into it. The Spirit was behind putting Jesus into that temptation ground. And we know from Scripture that First Corinthians, or James chapter 1, verse 13, I believe, says that God um, cannot be tempted and he cannot tempt people. So what does this mean? How is the Holy Spirit not tempting Jesus? Well, the word tempt is a very, very curious word in Scripture that has to be understood almost in terms of a two-sided coin. It's the word parasmos, the word tests and trial is one interpretation for parasmos, and then temptation, which is speaking of sinful temptations or satanic temptations that happen. So it's a test or it's a temptation. And I would say that we have to interpret that word in light of the context, and everything turns on the fulcrum of the heart. So if your heart, according to James 1, that's the word that's used there, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, various parasmos, various trials, various tests. Some people will translate verses 1 and 2 of James 1 as temptations, but trials are tests. God puts you into circumstances that are hard. God did not promise that your life was going to be easy. In fact, he oftentimes sets the table, sets the conditions to put you in a situation where you can't make it through the situation or through the circumstances, but by the power of God. God puts you in situations where you are being tried, where you are being tested, where there's pressure on, there's weights put on you by God that instead of you running out from under, you bear up under and you get stronger for the endurance of that circumstance. You trust God. He builds spiritual muscle in your life. What happens when you don't trust God, though? This parasmos that's a good thing for you turns into a parasmos that's a bad thing for you. The test, if your heart turns from trusting to questioning God, suddenly part turns into a temptation. It's like a chameleon. 
The skin of the chameleon is, um, is being based, the color of the skin of the chameleon is being based by what it is aligning itself up against. And so in the same way, if your heart is saying, I trust you, then it's good and it's, it's making you like Jesus. But if something is happening to you that you go, I don't trust you, God, you didn't put enough in me to bear up under this. Why did you do this to me? Why am I in this circumstance? Or, or put another way, I'm going to trust instant gratification. I'm going to trust absolute autonomy. I'm going to trust complete control and, and authority over whatever I want in my own flesh. Then suddenly you're operating and this circumstance is a temptation to you, not a trial that's for you. It moves from being something that's from God to something that's from Satan himself. That's what's happening. That's always what's happening in temptations. In circumstances, you always have a choice when faced with the decision to either trust God or rely on your flesh. And Jesus was facing severe tests and they needed to remain tests and not turn into temptations. That's what's going on here. This is a test. It clarifies some things in terms of what is happening here to him, he is vindicating his sonship by passing a test. What about where the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation? That's that same word, parasmos. Basically, if you apply the theology that I just taught you in terms of the difference between test and temptation, you could really say, when I'm praying, lead me not into temptation, we're praying, Lord, let whatever circumstances that are hard that I'm going to face that you're going to lead me into, let them remain as tests. And please, God, give me the strength for them not to turn into temptations. Where I shake my fist upward at heaven and go, God, why did you do this to me? Lead me not into that situation. Give me the strength not to stop trusting you. Does that make sense to you? Is that helpful? I hope so, because this is the stuff of life. If Jesus allows for these tests to turn into temptations, even on the heart level, not in terms of what he does, but how he feels about what's happening to him. If he stops trusting God, he's not the son of God. If he stops trusting God, he loses his glory. If he stops trusting God the Father, he loses his mission and his enemy will be exalted. Jesus resisted temptation because paradise had been lost. Now, there was one Adam that was before Jesus, one man that was before Jesus known as the first Adam. And the first Adam was the only other man in all of history who was born without sin, Adam and Eve. I say born, he was created, uniquely created, but created without a sin nature. He had all the freedom to choose between good and evil. He and Eve his wife that came from him. And there they are. And Adam fell. And Eve fell to a trial that became a temptation. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. Boastful pride of life. I can be like God. I want that fruit. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to take it. I want instant gratification now. That trial became a temptation and sunk our world under the power and dominion of that serpent that tempted them and tempts us now. And Jesus has come to redeem that, to give us paradise regained by passing the tests of these temptations. 
Jesus is under a severe condition. Verse 2 understatedly says he was hungry, he was famished. If you've ever fasted, you know that appetite becomes suppressed for a time and then all of a sudden you become starving because you're in survival mode. You must eat to live. That's where he is at this point. He was very hungry and it was severe. And his guard, if anyone's guard was down, it would have been down at this moment. The devil is called the tempter. You see that in verse 3, the tempter. That's, he's named for what he's doing. He came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you're the son of God. Now, if you're a Greek shark, you'll follow this. It's a third class conditional use of if, which means since, since, since you are the son of God. Nobody's doubting whether or not Jesus is the son of God. God the Father has just proclaimed over Jesus with the, with the Spirit's anointing um, sort of, um, you know, landing on Jesus' shoulder, however that was depicted. It's an amazing affirmation that's just happened. Jesus is not doubting his sonship. And so Satan is not trying to cast doubt in Jesus' head or thinking at this point. He's trying to in, instead do the same thing that he did with Adam and Eve. There's nothing new here. Look, Since you are like God, made in his image, Adam and Eve, if you partake of the fruit, you will be ultimately just like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. There'll be secrets unveiled to you. God is holding out on you. And so fall prey to this temptation. In the same way, Satan, this tempter, is looking at the Son of God and saying, since you're the Son of God, instant gratification. Do it. Do it. Take it. Take it now. Feed your flesh, the lust of the flesh. It's how you're made. It feels so good. You can feel any way you want to feel. Are you noticing that the battleground in which satanic warfare is waged is in the mind? I'm not saying there aren't practical ways that we sin physically, but it all begins up here. This is where the war is waged. It's in your thinking. And so this... Temptation is coming to Christ. It has been called a double temptation because Satan is challenging the Lord Jesus to fall prey to selfishness, instant gratification. That would be one sin, the sin of selfishness. And number two, it would be the sin of calling Jesus to step outside of God's, the Father's will to come outside of a posture. Watch this, a posture of dependence. The Lord wants you and me to fight temptation by staying into a posture of dependence. Lord, I need you. Lord, I trust you. Lord, you feed me. Lord, you're with me. Not, I can do it. It's up to me. I can take this. And so if Jesus had succumbed to this temptation, he would have been sinning out of selfishness and he would have been sinning out of taking himself outside of God's will. Would it have been sin for Jesus to turn stones? These are limestone-sized um, rocks that would look like loaves of bread and to turn them into bread. Could he have done it? Yeah, he could have done it. He turned water into wine, right? And guess what? He turned water into wine according to God's perfect will and plan. That was Jesus' first miracle at Canaan right? So it wasn't wrong to make food. 
I think that he supernaturally made food on the beach when he was confronting and restoring Peter after he had denied him three times. He was on the beach and it says Jesus made breakfast. How did he make breakfast? He said breakfast, right? And there was breakfast. And so Jesus is that creator, but would it have been God's will for him to do it at this moment? No, it would have been wrong. And not just wrong because Satan tempted him or tested him to do it. It would have been wrong because it wasn't God's plan. And how do we know that? Well, I think we can see that through the way Jesus responded to Satan. See, Jesus is aligning himself with Israel in the wilderness. Jesus' mind is going, where am I right now? Okay, I'm in Yeshemin. I'm in this area, this wilderness area by the Dead Sea. This is exactly where Israel was. They were there for 40 years. I've been here 40 days. I need to connect with Scripture. Where Jesus goes is the second person of the Trinity. I've always been fascinated by this. Where does he go where the most powerful enemy in the universe of God attacks him? Where does he go? He goes to the Pentateuch. He goes to the fifth book of the Old Testament to grab a verse and apply it. Like he's going to a Sunday school class and goes, oh, this makes sense to me. That's how he fights against Satan's temptation. Satan wants to debunk and dethrone salvation history in this moment. He wants to send all of us to hell by having Jesus go outside of God's will. And Jesus goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8 to find a solution to this temptation. Deuteronomy 8 Two says this, this is Moses who wrote this, and you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Here's, look at this phrasing, testing you. Jesus says, he knows the Bible. He wrote the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit inspired Moses. Testing you to know what is in your heart. Why were the 40 years happening? To test to humble, to to show what's in the heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Jesus is basically saying, I need to keep this a test, not turn it into a temptation on the heart level. Deuteronomy 8.3, this is where he's specifically quoting from. In verse 4 of Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 fills in the context. It was talking about how the first generation complained. They wanted Egypt's food. They didn't want the manna plan. They didn't like that cafeteria plan. This food's lame. This is hospital food. We don't like it. Sorry, I'm just joking. But it's, uh, it says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which is this, I'm feeding you just enough to survive, not to feed your flesh But survival, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by every word, every promise. God was promising to feed, promising to provide. Don't step outside of God's will. Don't go out from under the promise. This is what Satan wanted Jesus to do. This is what you do when you say, I want it now. God's will that you, it, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? That each one knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor and holiness and purity. That purity is God's will. Don't step outside of it. Jesus grabbed for the point of this text. I'm living by the word of God as if it's my bread because God's gonna provide for me, not you, not me for myself, God the Father for me. 
And I'm not going to have bread my way. So how do you apply this to your life? And I want you to see this. This is probably the most important element of the message. When you fight against satanic temptation, which Satan is roaming to and fro, you know, back and forth across the earth. He's not omnipresent, but he is, I think, the most powerful fallen angel. A third of the angels fell. How many is that? Well, it's an uncountable number because in heaven it says there's a myriad upon myriad of angels, ten thousands upon ten thousands, an uncountable number. So a third of those came down, were swept down by the dragon's tail as depicted in Revelation 4. And so those demons are everywhere. I, as a 48-year-old, you know, I'm an old man now. No, I'm not. I'm 48. It's fine. But, but the older I get, I'm recognizing that satanic influence is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's pervasive. It's in the hearts of people. It's in the hearts of people that come into church. It's in the hearts of people out in the news media. It's in the hearts of our neighborhoods. It's around everywhere. There's subtle versions of it and there are overt versions of it. But that which flies in the face of the glory of Christ, that which rejects Christ is antichrist, is the spirit of antichrist. So how do you combat the spirit of antichrist when you're assaulted by satanic intrusion? Simply do what Jesus did. Don't fight Satan, fight for truth. Fight for truth. Fight for truth. When someone is combative to you, don't fight fire with fire. Don't get in the flesh. Don't get in some logician's battle. Fight for truth. Just hold high the word of life. Just diagnose what's going wrong with truth and then exalt the truth. Say, this is what I believe. It's a way to not engage it directly, actually. That's what Jesus is doing. He's just fighting for truth. Man shall, he's just principalizing the moment. It's a principle. Man shall not live by bread alone. I'm not going to engage whether or not it's righteous for me to make this stone into bread. I'm going to find out the issue beneath the issue, which is my survival plan is by God's promises, not by pragmatic self-gratification. And I'm going to quote scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Bible says, contend earnestly for the faith, right? Jude and 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Fight for truth. This is a way to survive the satanic attacks. Fight for truth. Don't get mad at the news. Fight for truth. Don't get angry by podcast. Fight for truth. Don't be flapped by fear. Fight for truth. Don't engage the dynamics that are going on. Fight for truth. You might defer with some of the laws of the land and, and act in a deferential posture, but you're not deferring to um, Satan's schemes in that. You're fighting for truth. We, we can defer. We can do different things and, and conduct ourselves in anchorage and the culture in a way that's godly and gracious because we're doing it for Jesus. We're doing it for truth. We're not doing it out of fear. Do things, every, everything by faith. Genesis chapter 3 again, the crafty serpent went in, verse 1, and Eve began to fight and dialogue with Satan. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, she's going, uh, 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 well, okay, yes, Satan, thank you. There is a tree actually that God said, hmm, little seed of doubt there is going into my mind. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. We can eat, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And she probably added that idea. I can't even touch it. Devil, Satan, you must be a good guy. You're showing me what's wrong here. That's dialoguing with the devil. Serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, which is a half truth and a whole lie. She's going to die spiritually, not immediately physically. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Here's the lust of the eyes. And you will be like God, the boastful pride of life, knowing good and evil. God's holding out on you. He's withholding things that are best and better for you. You deserve more. It's the same thing that Satan was saying to Jesus. Well, we talked about instant gratification. Let's quickly move to absolute freedom. This is the second temptation, autonomy, autonomy. The devil wastes no time in this moving into the second temptation. And he basically takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Verse five, the devil took him. I don't know how the devil's transporting Jesus, but it, it just says in the language, he takes him and takes him high up into the middle of Jerusalem on Mount Zion at the temple mount. So it's the highest point in the holy city. And this pinnacle point is the southeast um, corner of the temple. I guess you could kind of liken it to this corner looking down and you have a deep ravine that um, is 400 feet deep. I'm looking at one guy who's been to Israel. I've not been there, but I'm just reading about it and imagining this. There's a retaining wall. It's the highest point in the temple. Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch where the early church met and preached um, is is here. Jesus is here with Satan. And it's a, um, you know, 100 feet down and then a 400 foot ravine into a dark cavernous depth that it was said that if you jumped off, if that actually happened, you wouldn't see the person hit the ground because it's a dark cavern. So it's like you're going off into eternity. Satan is um, powerful. He's not omnipresent, but he is able to put Jesus in this position. William Barclay said it was the top of the mountain and it was a leveled out plateau, plateau that... um, the whole area was of buildings were built on with the temple there. It was a royal, um, royal regal area of the temple. Solomon's portico is there. Josephus, again, said it was a dizzying, dizzying 450-foot cavernous drop. There were pretend messiahs, um, one of whom actually threw himself off the temple Simon Magus is alleged to have done that. He said he would fly through the air and he died trying. Um, others said they would flatten the walls of Jerusalem, Acts 21, 38. Thutis, the revolutionary of the early um, A.D. period, he died in A.D. 46. He was a revolutionary against the Jews and he was a, kind of a false witness there and said he would part the Jordan. He couldn't do it. False messiahs, cult leaders will raise themselves up and say, I have the answers, I have the solutions, I'm this great person, I'm this great personality. You want to resist them. You want to resist anyone that isn't just opening up the true teaching of the word of God. Anyone who comes in the name of God has to speak clearly from scripture, yielded to truth, yielded to God in that attitude of submission, not this self-autonomous attitude, this cavalier spirit that you can easily detect in people where they would be like someone who would say, jump, jump. 
Well, that's what, that's what Satan is saying for Jesus to do. And he's actually quoting scripture this time to try to get him to do it. It says he took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and then said again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. This is the same thing, incidentally, and by the way, that when Jesus is on the cross, which when he was dying on the cross three years later, it's about probably seven feet high off, off the ground. So people are walking by Jesus almost at eye level with Jesus, jeering at him, wagging their head at him, mocking him. And what are they saying? They're saying, you would destroy the temple, again, temple language, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So save yourself. If you can do that, then just do this. What do you want him to do? If you're the son of God, Matthew 27, 40, come down from the cross. Come down, jump, jump down. Could Jesus have done it? Could he have summoned 10,000 angels, legions of angels? Absolutely. Would it have been God's will? No. Keeping a test a test is the goal of the Christian life. Don't let the test turn into a temptation. I'm going to use my ending now because I just think it is super clear and clarifying with temptation. So just listen to this and just bug out for the rest of the message. No, listen to this. Do you remember taking a test in class? Kids, are there any kids in here? Remember taking a test? Tests are nerve-wracking. I never liked them. I don't like them. But while you're taking a test, you either endure that test and take the test, and it stays a test. Or you allow Satan to enter into your mind, and you say, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to look to the left, to the left, or look to the right. I'm going to bring in answers or whatever, and I'm going to cheat. That's when a test becomes a temptation. It's a choice. Tests are coming. There will be tests. Let a test remain a test. My wife didn't like that I said this the first hour, but you know, if you're a C student, earn your C. Be a C student. Honor that and say, I'm a C student. I don't have to be an A student. I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to let my test be a test. Be a C level Christian. Just do what you need to do, trusting God. Don't morally compromise. Let a test stay a test. If you're a B student, be a B student. If you're an A, be an A. I was never an A student, not really. So I champion the C's and B's because you have to try hard. Not like Nathan, who was an A student over there. Sorry. <laughs> Psalm 91:11 is what the devil quotes. He's quoting part of it. He says. Um, He will, verse 6, command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um, Psalm 91.11 has more than that. This is sort of um, cut and pasted out of Psalm 91.11. I read it earlier. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's the verse filled fully out. To guard you in all your ways. In other words, in all of life. God will guard you. He'll keep your foot from being cast against a stone. It's not talking about dive bombing off a cliff or running out in the interstate or the highway and getting hit by a truck and saying, God will protect me. No, this, that kind of cavalier attitude is not what this promise is meant to be. It's not to be applied this way. And Satan is going, look, let's take this promise. You claimed a promise from Deuteronomy. I'm going to go to the Psalms. We'll use scripture together. Let's do Bible study together, right? And, and I'll lift this out, apply this promise to you being God and jump. 
That's not what the scripture is saying. It's saying God with his angelic host protects you in life through normal measures of life, normal everyday things as you trust him. And Jesus sees this. He understands this. Jesus said to him, verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now here he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. And he's basically, again, saying you should not test God. Deuteronomy 6.16 is another um, snapshot into Jesus's very vanilla approach here. He was in Deuteronomy 8. Does he scour through the Bible to find some answer to, uh, to Satan's bad hermeneutic? Hey, you cut and pasted out of scripture. You took that out of context. Let's, let's dialogue about that. No, he's saying, I'm just going to see the issue for what it is. I'm not going to take you head on. I'm just going to principalize the moment. You're wanting me to put God to the test. Deuteronomy 6 is Moses talking about Israel, how they complained and they griped and they grumbled in the wilderness. We don't have water. We don't have water. And so God made a way through a rock to be struck by Moses for them to be fed with water. But you don't put God to the test. The first generation fell in the wilderness. Pride comes before the, star, the fall. Take heed lest you fall, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These are scriptural principles. And grace is not grace if it doesn't have a limit to it. I mean, we are under God's grace. And if you're saved by grace, it's forever. But if you are presuming upon grace and you're sinning and sinning and saying, I'll get saved one day, I will get saved, I'll get serious to the Lord someday, then you're presuming upon God and you're putting God to the test. And Jesus is saying, I won't jump. People might be watching. They might be sensationalized by me taking a big swan dive and surviving that. But that would not be true faith. I'm not jumping. True faith is not putting the Lord God to the test. He wouldn't fall. He wouldn't do that. People who live for miracles are ultimately living like drug addicts looking for the next miracle to trump the last one, to trump the last one. And so Jesus was not going to parade a public miracle to try to get people to believe him that way. He uses the word of God. It's our weapon. Um, Alaskans love their weapons. Alaskans love their firearms. But I want to just hold one weapon up that is bigger and badder than all of them, and that's the Bible. We've got the weapon of the word of God Don't be afraid to use it against instant gratification and against absolute freedom. And then lastly, third temptation quickly, unlimited power. Unlimited power. It says, verse 8, again, so third temptation, not taking his time, going to the next one. We've gone through two of them. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, this third temptation in Luke's gospel, so you're not confused, is the second temptation. But Luke is just putting them in a different order for a different purpose as the author of that. Matthew puts it in this order. We have the lust of the flesh, instant gratification, uh, the boastful pride of life, which would connect with the second temptation, throw yourself off the temple, be arrogant and jump. And then this is the third temptation. Nothing new under the sun. These are the same three that were used in the garden now, being used now. This is the lust of the eyes. Hey, look at these kingdoms. I'm going to show you something, and you are going to want it. And it's the, the, the permission for Jesus to take for himself unlimited power. Unlimited power. 
goes to a high mountain, verse 8. It's an undisclosed location. It's very high, so he can look around. He can see kingdoms. But probably it was vision, a vision that opened up in the sky where Jesus could see all the kingdoms for all of the times, for all of the centuries, for all of human existence that he is the ruler over if he submits to one condition. You can have it all right now. No cross, no pain, no suffering. All you got to do is bow to me. And the language here is very explicit. Verse 9, he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So the devil took him to a high mountain. That's picturesque. If you can have it all, unlimited power, and showed him all the kingdoms. He showed him to see those, all the kingdoms of the world, and their glory. These kingdoms are glorious. They're huge. They're massive. You can have them all. All you have to do is literally, verse 9, fall down. Throw yourself down and proskuneo, worship. Give me worth. Give me value. Value me. That's all you got to do. This is what people are hearing in their minds when they rebel, when they are in abject anarchy, when they're pushing back on the system in lawlessness, when they're claiming that they can have it all, whenever they want it, however much they want of it. All complete power and authority is unlimited for me. They're saying, it's worth it. I'll worship the devil. They might not know that they're worshiping the devil. But when you give over to the world and give over, you are giving over to Satan. In the church, when someone is publicly disciplined and they are delivered, 1 Corinthians 5, when they are put out of the church or disfellowshipped, 1 Corinthians 5 says they are delivered over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That's a person who is out from under the benefits and the accountability of the church, of the moral and spiritual accountability of the word of God, where somebody is let go. And so they run the course of their life into the ground till they hit rock bottom and hopefully repent. That's the power of restoration. But this is Satan's realm that people are submitting to. Romans 1 says the culture worships the creature rather than the creator. Liberalism is attempting to push this kind of secular, humanistic, false ideology, this false promise of unlimited power if you go that direction. It's all found in Romans 1. Genesis 3, you shall be like God. You can have unlimited power. You can be God. If you take the prophetic um, outcry of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 14, the I will, I will ascend, I will, I will, I will. All of those satanic messages that were in his own heart where Lucifer fell, it's the temptation to want unlimited power to be like God. It's the, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes that feeds this boastful pride of life. Well, you ask, does Jesus, doesn't he deserve unlimited power? Isn't he Jesus? Absolutely he does. But Jesus is in a posture of submission and humility within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, all displayed at baptism. We, we saw that last week at the baptism of Christ. One God, we sang about this one God earlier, Jesus Christ operating within the Trinity in humility, realizing and recognizing that there needed to be a cross before the crown. He needed to die for you and me 
rather than taking unlimited power for himself on his own terms. He was following within the plan that was established between the father and the son. And he was waiting for the father to give him all the kingdoms of the earth in God's time. That's why he correctly diagnoses the issue that you're either going to serve God or Satan. Verse 10, and Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, get grapti. It's the scripture says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is Deuteronomy six thirteen. Again, going right back to Deuteronomy. Don't serve idols. Don't serve the satanic idols that are propped up. Don't serve these things that promise power. Worship God alone. Psalm 2, 8, ask of me, this is God the Father speaking, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Listen, Satan wants you to grab for something an instant gratification, but if you're willing to suffer for Christ's sake and be refined by him, guess what? He'll provide for all of your needs according to, your, to his riches and glory, and he'll give you heaven. And in heaven, you'll be gratified. You'll still be submissive. We all will. But we will have all of our needs met completely. We'll be gratified. We'll enjoy the power of God in an unrestrained way. We'll worship Him freely. The Lord is good. Jesus said directly to Satan, Be gone. Not in a cavalier way. He said the same thing to Peter when Peter was trying to tempt. Satan was tempting Jesus through Peter for him not to suffer on the cross. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. But he uses scripture as the buffer. Even in Jude, it says that Michael the archangel didn't take Satan directly on. He said, the Lord rebuke you in that context. Satan was trying to find out the whereabouts of Moses' body to take it as a possession. And Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. We use the scripture. We go to scripture in warfare. Jesus does deserve absolute power. 1 Corinthians 15 guarantees that at the name of Jesus, at Jesus' resurrection and ascension, all his enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. And God the Father gives him that glory and Jesus reflects that glory scene right back to the Father. It's all wrapped up in Trinitarian in, an, in the Trinity. Verse 11 is the final scene. It says, Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What does that mean? As soon as the devil left, and again, when we resist the devil, he flees from us. When we go to scripture, he's gone. As soon as he left, angels came. This just kind of reflects the mercy of God. God was always with Jesus. Jesus was in desolation. He was in the wilderness. He was destitute. He was under assault, but God was always with him. Jesus passed the test. It was a test that remained the test. It didn't become a temptation. He didn't cheat. He didn't skimp. He didn't short circuit the process. He survived the test. And as soon as the devil went, the angels came and probably fed him food, just like the prophets when they would be in that destitute situation. He, he was fed, he was ministered to, he was built up, he was restored to physical strength. I just assume all these things based on the whole of Scripture. 
There's a lot of satanic things that are going on. Listen, don't, we're not afraid of Satan. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But don't underestimate satanic power. Fight the good fight. Use your, use your weapon. Use your firearm, which is the word of God, right? The sword of the spirit. And let's destroy speculations and lofty things raised up against God. Taking them captive to the obedience of Christ for his glory. We stand firm as the church of God.